Happy Saturday. It is May 28th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Memorial Day weekend. Welcome to the opening of summer. It's here. It's finally here. I'm wearing a bikini. I'm eating a hot dog. And I'm guzzling gallons of rosé as we record this episode, just in anticipation of the summer to come. We take summer seriously here at Airmail. I guess so. Yeah, we're off and running. So here we are. Yeah, rosé season, book season, beach season, travel season. This is the stuff that we live for. Movies back in the theater season. Top Gun 2 flying into theaters this weekend. Did you see Downton Abbey the movie? No, but actually aside from Memorial Day, I know we both want to say that most of all, this has been a very sad week as well. Okay, well, there's been a lot going on in the airmail universe this week. First and foremost, we've all been reacting and attempting to process what happened uh, at the mass shooting and that left 19 elementary school children and two teachers dead on Tuesday. Uh, this is another Sandy Hook massacre 10 years after we swore that we would never do this again, as Graydon writes in the issue this week. And we have a really interesting essay from a 10th grader named... Khalil Wright. He's a winner of this year's Young Readers Prize, which is an essay writing contest that's held by the Harvard Library of New York. And that's our view from here this week. And he writes about not only his nightmares, but also his dreams and how those two desires come into conflict, especially in this incredibly fraught world that children are living in these days. Yeah, it's a powerful essay, and I would encourage everyone to read it. It's perspective that we need to hear more of, and and it actually leaves you with some hope about a way forward. Yeah, we've heard way too much from adults in the past week, a lot of pontificating and a lot of inaction, as usual, when it comes to this issue. And it's, um, if anything, it does Khalil's story and, you know, Khalil's thoughts are very visceral, right? And it it reminds us that like the children are really the center of this story and we should be hearing from and listening to so many more of them. And No, it does remind you that there's always the debate with adults about what to do and what, what, what has to be done. And yet I think Khalil's essay reminds you the voice of kids and the children is just as strong a seat at the table as anyone else. Yeah, we take it for granted that we didn't grow up with the sound of gunfire and the looming threat of a school shooting, right? It's just this is not something that our generation was contending with. It's really powerful to hear not only the stories from the parents of the children in Texas who were killed, but also to hear from Khalil, who's experiencing, who has experienced a different type of gun violence and who is also living with this threat of, you know, what's going to happen every day when he goes to school and leaves the safety of his home. Exactly. But as we say, very ultimately hopeful does give you hope in the future and, and uh, the children who are, who are growing into it. It's a very wise and thoughtful essay. In other news, actually, Stuart Heritage has a report out of London this week from what's known as Pestminster, which is what they've recently been calling Westminster, and specifically in the House of Commons, which has become, it seems, a giant cesspool of sexual assault cases. Yeah, this is so weird. What was the Netflix show, Anatomy of a Scandal? This is a tsunami of scandal. Yeah, that was just one. This is a tsunami. I mean, these stories are almost too disgusting to repeat. Do you want to go through them? Not especially. I mean, I will say that it's everything from one MP watching pornography on the floor of the House of Commons while they're debating, one MP who resigned this month after being convicted of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy at a party, others who have another senior conservative MP had a habit of applying those around him with date rape drugs. And boy, when you think things are strange in your country, 
Then you've got the House of Commons. Yeah, it's like, guys, first and foremost, pro tip, don't watch porn on your work computer. I mean, come on, this is amateur stuff here. Then you've got this one conservative MP, a man named Charlie McElphick, who was found guilty of sexual assault after being accused of chasing a woman around a house, chanting, I'm a naughty Tory, I'm a naughty Tory. Like, dear God, like this is just, we thought it was bad here in the US with our politicians and their deviant sexual behavior, but this is worse. Well, thank you, Stu, for keeping us abreast of all the latest scandals rocking the UK. Crazy behavior, which would dovetail with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, yes, indeed. And we've got a story on that, too. The madness of Putin. Mad, bad, and definitely dangerous. He's isolated. He's alone. He's micromanaging this fiasco of his own making. Meanwhile, he's furious about his crumbling legacy. Turns out you can't have it all, Vlad. Yeah, it turns out he also, similar to another sort of power-crazed European leader, he seems to be having a lot of parallels with the last days of Hitler for some people. But as Mark Galliotti reports this week, Putin has seems to have devolved into, he's become more paranoid than ever. He rarely ventures out of the Kremlin now. Senior ministers and advisors are all kept at a distance and seems to be reminding people of Hitler's last days, especially because just like Hitler, he's micromanaging the war, taking it away from the military staff, the senior generals, and thinks that he knows best how to prosecute the war. He's spending most of his time in the mansion on his summer estate, which is called Novo Ogoryovo, which is in a suburb of Moscow, popular with rock stars and yes, oligarchs. He does accept visitors there, but increasingly he kind of doesn't want to see you. He's got a staff and his bodyguards, his food tasters and all of those guys, but his ministers, not so much. And it's curious. He wakes up late, which I think is kind of odd for a world leader in wartime, but okay. Then he takes a swim. Then he starts his work. And the one smart thing he does, Michael, is he doesn't trust the internet. He does have to be briefed with traditional paper briefings. I find it curious that similar to other leaders that may come to mind for you, Putin has absolutely no meaningful military experience, despite he evaded national service because he went to university, but he's always insisted that he, quote, commanded an artillery battery. But the truth is, he's never commanded anything. Yeah, and it's interesting because when he was coming up, and in fact, for most of his time in leadership at the Kremlin, he was known for being a people person. And I don't mean that in a positive, touchy-feely way, like he's not going to take you to a baseball game. Aw, He always knew how to play people, right? He knew how to manipulate them. He was very skilled at that, especially due to his training in the KGB. Just think of him as Matthew Reese in The Americans. Like, he was extremely skilled at ingratiating himself to people and manipulating them. Uh, And it turns out that now he seems to have lost those people skills. Now he's just looking a little bit out to lunch and batty. I think it's like, you're right, because he had those people skills, which served him well when he was the spy master. And you, as a spy, you're used to sort of presenting the appropriate face to the appropriate person. But you know what? If you're spending the last two, three years basically in isolation, you get a little rusty at your game. You don't really know how to present anymore. And maybe he just doesn't have the old tools of the spycraft trade and knowing how to present the proper face to the proper person so as to deceive them. And now he's sort of a little flat in his performance. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, things are slightly more stable over in France, although as Alexandra Marshall is about to tell us, not for long. Alex is one of our writers at large. She is based in La Perche, which is a town slightly outside of Paris. She lived in Paris for many years and she is a writer at large for us. And she covers all sorts of things from travel and food and fashion to, of course, French politics and scandal. We're thrilled to have her on the show to tell us all about what's happening with Emmanuel Macron and his image as he settles in for his next term. 
Michael, you and I are not the only ones obsessing over Emmanuel Macron and his chest hair. It turns out... What? But you speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Alexander Marshall, one of our writers at large here at Airmail, who lives in France, has been keeping an even closer eye on all things Macron for us. And we're thrilled to have her here on the podcast to break down exactly what is going on with the French president and his ever-evolving image. Welcome, Alex. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. It's great to talk to you. Okay, so Alex, let's start with the chest hair heard around the world. <laughs> what was that all about? I mean, let's just go. Let's just go to the lowest common denominator, right? There. Well, I don't know if it's the lowest. It's certainly the flushest and plushest. But um, well, one interesting thing this with this president in particular is that he has a photographer who follows him around like Pete Souza, which is kind of the first time that a French president has ever had so much visual communication. And this is probably because we live in the age of social media now, but it's a sort of a weird cultural fit with the way that French presidents or hopefuls run for office. And generally speaking, even though this election was a great relief to a lot of people because Marine Le Pen didn't win and, you know, technocracy and centrism and sanity have won the day, it was actually a huge concern to a lot of people in France because the participation was so lackluster. People were so unenthused. There was a lot of abstention and the voting body, 40% came in for either the hard left or the hard right. So we have like new levels of people who are willing to entertain a kind of whether on the left or the right, very populist, anti-European kind of radical, you know, possibility for France. So sound and fury signifying lots. So then if I'm hearing you correctly, you've got 40 on the left, 40 on the right. And is Macron, with his embrace of the selfie and, and this uh, sort of Obama-like Pete Souza photographer, does that is he mean he's then gambling on if I sort of reveal my chest hair and my other behind-the-scenes <laughs> things? Like, that's where the swing voters' appeal lies? <laughs> Well, he was worried about the youth vote. I don't know whether his he was worried about the manscaping vote, but he probably should have been. There was something about his communication, actually, where because maybe it's the nature of media today, which is so atomized, but he was kind of trying to be all things to all people. So And so he uses different media platforms as well to do this. He used YouTube a lot this time around, notably with a series that he did. I think it was a seven-part series called Le Candidat, where he launched his campaign to the sort of giggles of a lot of French people who just aren't used to this level of constant onslaught of comms, right, left, and center. And so he went in so hard on so many fronts with so many different messages and looks and vibes that it was it felt to an outside observer, or to any observer maybe, a little hysterical, a little over the top, a lot thirsty. Well, and speaking of thirst, I mean, his so his official-ish photographer is a woman named Swazig de la Moissonnière, and she's got a big Instagram following. She's kind of a fascinating character in her own right, but if you look at her Instagram account, it's just a bunch of sexy pictures of Macron, yes. kind of looking like French GQ. Yes. You know, he's like, he's like in the suit of the season. He's got an angsty expression. Yes. He's always looking at paperwork, always. Well, she has the benefit of a subject who does not look like, with apologies to other French presidents, Francois Hollande, or, I mean, she has a good looking guy. Let's face it. He's young. He's sexy. His eyes sparkle. Now we know he's also got a, you know, he's 
masculine <laughs> on the chest area. He's well-thatched. He's well-thatched. He, he looks good in a suit. And he's also, don't forget, he trained as an actor when he was a kid. And in fact, is now married to his high school drama teacher. So he likes a camera, this Macron. And Swazig de la Moissonniere is an amazing photographer. I mean, no matter what you want to say about whether it's well-intentioned or not, or cynical or too much, she takes incredible pictures. And her carousels are always beautifully sort of curated with like, there's always a small moment and a big moment and a, a dynamic moment and a quiet moment. And yes, as you mentioned, Ashley, a lot of like signing papers, because among other things in this new age of social media familiarity, the Macron campaign sees a young audience that might not even know what the president does. So they want to show them. They might not even know what paper is. Exactly. In fact, one really funny meme that circulated before the campaign um, was one of Swazig's photos, and it was just of Macron's desk with a post-it on it. And it, I can't remember what the line item that was on the post-it, but it was like, you know, save money on the budget. Done. Like, you know, checkbox. And, you know, the entire internet just made so much fun of him. Was there one that says, you got this? <laughs> felt like that. I mean, no, but that would be too much even for Macron. A little dignity, please. Some of the great context you bring to the piece is, you know, you point out that going back to even the days of de Gaulle and even in the days of uh, when, when television came in, French presidents always mm -hmm. kind of ruled with this stentorian mystique, as you call mm -hmm. it. And then, but now the country, as you, as you note, uh, makes me laugh. It's like that finds it gauche to smile openly in the streets. It's true. Fa faces this horrible <laughs> dilemma, as you say, in the age of social media, which like these guys like don't just want to be respected. Much like in America, they want to be liked. Yeah, and that's not a, that's not a good look for the historical French political culture. I mean. Okay, so we have another five years of Macron. Where does that, I mean, he, he's in a relatively precarious position, though, as you explain in your story. So tell us, w w what place in French politics does he occupy and how tenuous is his grasp on power? Well, when he goes, there's nobody left to take his place because his party is entirely built around him. So when there's no more Emmanuel Macron after this term, there's no centrist party anymore. It's a huge Macron-shaped hole that's basically going to be left, and it will probably be filled by somebody much scarier. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got a lot to read in the issue this week and your wonderful analysis and assessment of all of this. And then we got, there's more coming down the pike. So we'll talk to you again very soon. Well, thanks again for, for checking in. Thank you. Thank you. I'm always ready for more Macron, and I'm always ready for more Brigitte, too. Can't get enough. Mal Macron. Madame Macron. I love her in her little Louis Vuitton suits. She looks so good all the time. Mm -hmm. He's a handsome devil too. His teeth are very white. All day. Have you noticed that? He's like Joe Biden. He's got these like big chiclet chompers. I'm here for it. But they're not veneers. He's too young to have veneers, probably, right? They're, I couldn't comment on that, Michael. I can just say his teeth are blindingly white. Blindingly white. With that blue suit and the white shirt, it's always like... He's always grinning. Yeah. And when he's not grinning, you want to make him grin. I just want him to smile. Mm -hmm. Love him. Okay, moving on. All right, I have a question for you. Yes. 
Do you wear fragrance? Mm-mm. I don't either. Why do you think that is? We're from the Midwest. Oh, must be it. Okay. Well, apparently we're the only people who don't wear fragrance. It's a massive business. And Linda Wells talks about it in her story this week. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I have a ton of fragrance. In fact, I have the new Costa Brazil one. that I, You know Francisco Costa. See, Francisco's great. He's used to be the creative director of Calvin Klein Collection for Women. And he's an incredible fashion designer, but then he turned his attentions to beauty. And now he's got a great line of products called Costa Brazil. Anyway, he has a great new fragrance there that I just tried and I love. So I do have that. I just don't wear it every day. Anyway, Linda Wells is probably going to help me find the right one because she has a great story on a guy named Francis Kurjian. He's what we call a nose, which is to say a person who makes perfumes out of different scents and puts them together. And now he's been installed at the House of Dior and she interviews him as he is in the process of putting together the House of Dior's next blockbuster fragrance, the thing that you're going to be smelling forever on millions and millions and millions of women. So it's an interesting look at what makes this guy tick and also what his process is like. The guy I really enjoyed hearing from this week in the issue was speaking of what makes him tick. I encourage you all to take a moment and read the perfect ending this week, which was done by one of my favorite writers, David Sedaris, who answered 52 of life's most pressing questions. And I promise you they'll make you laugh and also give you some pretty great inside information. It's funny when this came in, I sent it to you and Alessandra and, and Julia, I think, and I said, like, is this the best perfect ending ever? Because I think his answers are so great. But this guy makes me laugh. I don't laugh ever. Like, I don't really think very many things are funny, but pretty much every David Sedaris essay has a moment where I just start guffawing. And I can't wait. He also has a new book coming out called Happy Go Lucky, which is coming out on May 31st. It's his latest essay collection. Did you read Calypso? I did. The story titled Calypso? where he has this fatty tumor in his body and he, he has it removed like after hours in a doctor's office. Like the guy just has a more unusual life than most. And the way that he writes about it, it seems so easy, right? It seems just like this really discursive journal. And in fact, it takes incredible skill. I just love David Sedaris. Love him. Terrific. Speaking of books, we have a very smart review of a new book this week. It is the autobiography of Chris Blackwell, the man who founded the legendary record label Island Records, responsible for releasing music for everyone from Jimmy Cliff to Bob Marley and the Whalers, and sort of transformed music in the 60s and 70s. And we've got Tom Freston, the former head of MTV and Viacom, who gave his review of it, right? Yeah. I mean, Tom has had one of the most interesting and varied careers I've seen. He started in basically in cable television. He was one of the founding members of the team that created MTV. And then he was the head of marketing at MTV, then the president and CEO of MTV, a job he held for 17 years and ran MTV networks like Nickelodeon, VH1, Comedy Central, all those things. Uh, Then in 2004, he was named co-president and co-CEO of Viacom. So he saw oversaw MTV, Paramount, Famous Music Publishing, and Simon & Schuster. So the guy is just basically a legend in the world of media. These days, he is the principal of Firefly 3, which is a consulting and investment company. He's a senior advisor of the One Campaign. He works with Bono, and he's just a wonderful creative thinker. So we're so happy to have him here to talk about Chris Blackwell and Jamaica. Welcome, Tom. We're so happy to have you here to talk about Chris Blackwell, a guy we thought we knew a lot about, and it turns out there's so much more to his story. So thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. So Tom, you've known Chris Blackwell for many years. Take us back to when you first met and what your initial impressions of him were even before you met him personally. I first met Chris in the 80s at MTV, and he was running Island Records and was a legend that I knew of, and I had followed his career. I was sort of a music freak, so I knew about Chris and... He 
was really representative of the sort of uh, creative artist-centric labels that existed back in those days, you know, like A&M Records, Geffen's Asylum Records, Island, where you had a founder who was really kind of curating a label based on their own taste. They would stick with an artist for a while. They didn't have to have hit records all the time. It was like meeting a legend. It was almost like meeting a, a, a rock star himself. And in those early days, I mean, the, the first video we ever played on MTV was the Buggles video, Kill the Radio Star. That was one of his acts. And then, of course, we had a big run early on with Robert Palmer and then with U2, Melissa Etheridge and so many other artists. So we, we I wouldn't say that MTV grew up with Island Records. They preceded us in a much bigger way in the 70s. But I've known Chris for years. He's a great friend. You touch on this a little bit, you know, in your review this week. And you talk about here he was, a, a white boy who grew up in uh, in Jamaica. And he's sort of in this cross between the white and the black worlds. And he built this empire in music, as you say, you know, which at the moment when the culture still seemed to take direction from the radio. But he became this kind of, I think you put your finger on it, this Zelig-like guy who touched everyone from Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff to Cat Stevens and Nick Drake and Tom Waits. And it was just, he just seemed to have this knack for zeroing in on talent, right? Yeah. You know, his idol, who became his partner in later years, Ahmed Erdogan, who famously ran Atlantic Records. I mean, he was, one of his great lines is that the key to success in the music business is just hang around and hope you bump into a genius. And then you will be successful. And Chris made an art form out of that because he was hanging around in all the right places at the right times. He was in Jamaica in those early days and saw that whole music scene bubbling up. And then in the swinging London era, he arrived exactly on time and was able to see firsthand, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, their managers, their producers. He was, he was sort of deep into it. And, you know, after he had a hit, people would approach him. People like to say he discovered Bob Marley, but that really came 10 years after he had built this great, you know, roster of essentially rock and roll artists. Bob Marley did say, I discovered Chris Blackwell, but people would come to him. So the opportunity for him to bump into genius was really uh, multiplied greatly. He really started at the bottom of the barrel, had his finger on the audience in, in Jamaica, and as a white guy did that. And was acclaimed and went to England. And, uh, you know, he was, when he went to England, he was selling records, Jamaican records, largely to Jamaicans living in the UK, selling them out of the trunk of his car. I mean, he was a, he was a foreigner. He never really got into the mainstream because that was something he really avoided, but he certainly did get into the mainstream of the flow of the whole scene in England uh, by his reputation and which just grew over time. Tom, he ultimately ended up selling Island Records to Polygram, and he started focusing his considerable energies on things like real estate development, hotels, movies. Tell us a little bit about this second phase of his career and where, where, what he's doing now. He started in the 80s. He started a thing at Compass Point. He started a studio. He wanted to have something sort of like the Swampers had down in uh, Alabama. He wanted to create sort of a studio sound. So he set up this in a, on an island near Nassau. He set up a studio, and when he would go there... Uh, to get artists to come there, he had to provide them some kind of hospitality. So he got into buying houses and fixing them up, and he, he sort of enjoyed that. And when he sold Polygram, sold to Polygram, actually before he did that, 
he kind of morphed into really the discovery of South Beach. He was a first mover there in the late 80s. Now he is basically focused totally on his beloved Jamaica. And he has this thing called Island Outpost and Goldeneye, which, you know, obviously was where Ian Fleming lived and a place that Bob Marley had purchased and Chris subsequently is sort of the centerpiece of five or six resorts he has around the island. He's sort of the unofficial minister of tourism there. And his 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 hotels are as iconic classic as he is. Have you stayed at Goldeneye? Can you tell can you take us there and tell us what it's about? Yeah, I've stayed there a bunch of times. You know, it's on the northeast coast of Jamaica, which is a very romantic, removed, still rural part of Jamaica, very lush. Goldeneye was an estate, I don't know exactly how many acres, but uh, he has gradually built around it a, a series of different hotels. In, in the book, which is titled The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond, you tell two stories which I love from the book, and uh, I'm wondering if you could share them now. One is, speaking of Goldeneye and Ian Fleming, he, along with Noel Coward, was one of the people who lived on the island. Uh, Blackwell grew up there. But curiously, Blackwell's mother was something of an inspiration for Ian Fleming, correct? Yes, his mother, uh, Chris's mom and dad divorced somewhere in the 40s. And his mom had a relationship with Ian Fleming for some period of years. In fact, she was sort of the character on which he based Pussy Galore. And in the original James Bond film, where Ursula Andress comes out of the water with a knife strapped on her leg, which really set that whole franchise in motion, at a spot at a beach that Chris, as a location scout, had isolated as the place to do it, that character, who she was also based on Blanche Blackwell. Quite a mother to have. Yeah. Also, I, I, I just <laughs> love this moment. If you could share, when you talk about him taking the records to London as a young man, and he ends up arguing with a long-haired teenage clerk at a London record store about R&B records. And who was that guy that he was arguing with? It was Brian Jones, you know, who was, who's was the guy who really put the Rolling Stones together. He was working in a record store. Chris met him, and I think he said, you know, come see my band at the Rolling Stones. Chris ultimately went to see the Rolling Stones. And then I think seven or eight years later, when they were the biggest band in the world, Mick Jagger had a conversation with Chris about, hey, maybe we should come to Island Records. And uh, Chris didn't want them because he thought the Stones would overwhelm sort of the vibe there and overwhelm what they were doing. They were, they were too big for him to handle. So he turned them down, as he did for some other acts. Well, Tom, thank you so much for not only your thoughtful review of the book, but for joining us here. It's always so great to talk to you and, and get your insights. Well, thank you, Michael and Ashley. Talking to Tom, I'm like, I'm a loser. Like, Tom Freston, like, talk about a guy with a voracious appetite for all sorts of things. Tom, you inspire me to do better. As does the book, The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond by Chris Blackwell, which is, I mean, talk about a life that's inspiring as... Tom wrote at the end of his review, it's 320 pages long. I could have read 320 more. And I've dipped into it myself. And I say it's every sort of page you flip to. It's like, wait, what? It's like a zealot of a man moving through the culture in the last 50 years. Amazing. Mm -hmm. All right, Michael, 
It is a long weekend. We've got a lot of free time on our hands. Do you have anything at all to recommend? I do. And 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 speaking of music and Tom's review of the Blackwell book, this is something that's beautiful and exciting and also for a good cause. It's called the Bird Song Project. And many of you know Randall Poster, our music supervisor here at Airmail, who is also the music powerhouse behind such filmmakers as Martin Scorsese and Wes Anderson. He's worked with some of the biggest names on the biggest movies. But now he's released the first volume of For the Birds, and it's a star-studded collection of original songs and recordings and readings, all inspired by or incorporating bird songs. This is a project that grew out of lockdown when Poster, like I and many others, found himself hearing in the profound silence of that moment the songs of birds. And as a man who knows music, he thought, why not pair these songs with artists? So, lo and behold, you now have Nick Cave, Mark Ronson, Tilda Swinton, Beck, Karen Ellison, Jarvis Cocker, and many, many more who have lent their talent, and the result is something wonderful and awe-inspiring. It's a massive boxed set of 242 songs, all inspired by birds. It's lovely, transportive, and quite moving. And I would say, Best of all, they've partnered with the Audubon Society to raise awareness of these beautiful little song weavers, as so many of them now are suffering the grave threats to their very existence due to climate change. Once again, it's called The Birdsong Project, and you can find it at audubon.org slash birdsongproject. Awesome. Thank you. And you, my darling? Well, I picked up, you know, I don't read a lot of historical fiction, but I did pick up this book at the library and it's uh, by the writer Allison Pataki and it's called The Magnificent Lives of Marjorie Post, which is kind of a great summer beach read if you're interested in Marjorie Merriweather Post and the bizarre times that she lived in. So this takes us through the entire course of her life from her youth growing up in Battle Creek, Michigan. Her father uh, was a patient of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and was at the sanitarium there. It was fascinating. And her father founded the company that ultimately became General foods. She was right alongside him as his business made its ascent. And she was in fact, many ways responsible for the success of the business. Uh, She lived an incredible life. It's just like totally wild times. And Pataki, the author, is takes a very historical look at all of this. So while it is technically fiction, she spent six years researching the life and times of Marjorie Mer- Merriweather Post. And, you know, it's interesting because she really in many ways is a very contemporary woman. And uh, her effect on the world that we live in is still very apparent today. And not only because she did build Mar-a-Lago, the Palm Beach mansion, where unfortunately Donald Trump now lives and still owns. But her family business, it turns out, is still a very big deal. They took in over $3 billion in 2021. So Anyway, it's a really wonderful look back at a historical figure who's, you know, had her fair share of the spotlight, but she gets a much closer look in Alison Pataki's newish novel, The Magnificent Lives of Marjorie Post. Sounds captivating. Great. All right. We wish you all a happy, happy, happy weekend. A long weekend. Holiday weekend. The beginning of summer weekend. Yes, by all means. We can't wait to see her next week. So, Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. 
We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music. Most of all, thank you again for joining us.